a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're looking at a new book, Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating by award-winning journalist Jeff Sparrow. Now, He's got a bit of a different take on climate change. In fact, in it, he talks about ordinary people not being to blame and, in fact, offers some hope for the future. But he says it's not our fault. (laughs) That's right. So, yes, the good news, you're not at fault for global warming. The bad news is that if we're going to save the planet, we've got to get rid of capitalism. And, of course, we have failed to do that uh, for the last 200 years. I have found this a really fascinating book because it provides a standard Marxist approach to thinking about the environment. And that's certainly lacking in the discussions about the environment. So what normal just books about the environment, and golly, we've looked at enough of them on this program. We'll talk about the role of individuals and what they can do, recycling plastic bags, etc. A Marxist approach to history would say human agency, in other words, the behavior of ordinary individuals, really is not that important. You've got these larger forces that are at work. And from a Marxist point of view, those larger forces are economics and technology, and they drive change within society. So the ordinary individual really can't do very much to change it. They get locked into a particular environment or context, and they are then driven like a a cork floating in a river heading towards uh, the sea. They're they're just bobbing along on the top of the river. So this book is, in effect, saying, look, much of the discussion that goes on regarding the environment is really a waste of time. You've got, obviously, on the right, you've got the greenwashing, which is where you've got corporations who are claiming now to be green because they're recycling paper, et cetera, all of this to fool the consumers. Uh, But you've also got a lot of environmentalists who are really naive thinking that they're going to save the planet by not using plastic bags or other smaller individual initiatives. He's just saying this is all a waste of time. And in fact, yeah, he does say don't be guilt-tripped into finding individual solutions and says, in fact, that recycling you're doing every week in the different bins is not making a difference, but it's about a bigger picture than that. Yeah, and that's exactly why a Marxist approach is so challenging because what they're saying is that it's really the corporations and economics and technology that are driving change. Um, so by all means, listen to the Greta Thunbergs, but really she's not coming up with anything that's going to change our lives. She's good for warning us about the dangers of climate change, but we now know that, well, most people know it, but a lot of ordinary people are saying, well, perhaps I've got to do more recycling of, of plastic bags making less use of an automobile, et cetera, whereas he's actually saying, no, look, this is all small stuff. You're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You've got to deal with the really big issues, which is capitalism. And his goal in this book, in fact, is to talk about it in a less depressing way. He doesn't (laughs) want people to be overwhelmed by the problem. Um, He actually hopes a more optimistic outlook will help us find some solutions, but says we should be aiming to make the planet better rather than just less bad. 
but he really does focus on the bigger corporations and the fact that individuals aren't to blame, doesn't he, in, in terms of, for example, the car culture he mentions. Yes, the car culture one is very interesting because that chapter, uh, he's got a 13 sort of case studies relating to the environment. And so the one on cars is very interesting because he takes the view that humans did not automatically take up driving. Uh, we had to become socialised into making use of, of automobiles. Um, there were great reservations. Remember that those, those old pictures of uh, a person going before a car carrying a flag to warn people that there was actually a car behind. So in the very early days, people felt very um, unsure about automobiles. And it was by no means guaranteed that the automobiles would be powered by petrol, uh, that they might well have been powered by steam or electricity. So it's interesting we're talking now about electric cars, but we were doing so 100 years ago. It's just the big oil companies realized this is a good opportunity for us to start selling oil. So they killed the electric car industry. And created a demand for oil. For oil, exactly. And so we've got then this creation of this car culture, which the cars were not invented in the United States. They're invented in Europe. But it was in the United States that you get mass production. And then society is being created based on people driving automobiles. So you've got people, well, if you look at look here at us in Australia now, that we have people living a long way from the city centre and commuting to work and just accepting that as part of the normal way of life uh, rather than growing up in the city and living within the city. Uh, so Paris, for example, has a much higher population density than Sydney. People are living in, in those apartments quite often without elevators as well. That'll keep you fit. <laughs> so what happened is that the, the, the corporations created the context in which the desire for cars became automatic. And so you simply grew up in a society saying, I need to have a, an automobile. So it's a rite of passage for people when they enter their late teens that they get an automobile. It's interesting. I'm now teaching, before COVID came along, young Americans, and a lot of them don't no longer own cars. They're already moving beyond that. And of course, Uber is helping that process as well in the sense that you don't need to own a car. You just need access to somebody else's. And so Uber or whatever uh, is providing that. But it is interesting, as he shows in this book, how cars came to shape society and how we became so reliant upon that. But you can also find ways of perhaps becoming less reliant on automobiles. And it's not just cars. He does also talk about fossil fuels in terms of the development of the steam engine and people becoming convinced that it was more effective than other options like water power. Um, so in the, the beginning, yes, that's fuels. right. Yeah. So in the beginning, the Industrial Revolution was water-powered and wind-powered. Um, and then they realised that you could actually do better by using coal. Coal is a very efficient way of generating power. And so you then get this confluence between the, the coal mine owners and the people who are running the factories. And so that's the basis of the Industrial Revolution. It begins in Great Britain, say around the year 1750, and then moves out around the rest of the world. And that's the era in which we're now living. Even though you and I obviously do not work in a factory, that factory system of production dominates our lives. 
And so we we work in factory-like conditions in the way that this place is organized, even though it's not technically a factory. But we are so used to starting at a certain time, finishing at a certain time. These are the, the characteristics of the factory system of production. And this is why I find the book so fascinating, because what he's doing is actually saying, look, there is this larger superstructure, using the Marxist rhetoric, there's a superstructure in which ordinary people are trapped. They don't necessarily know. This is why you talk about the focus on consciousness, that people's uh, consciousness is shaped without their knowing it. Uh, They think they have human agency, but in fact, it's a very limited range of options that they will have at any one time. And this superstructure is what keeps them as happy consumers. If you go back to uh, the beginning of modern economics, so that's around, again, say, 1750, and then, of course, you get Adam Smith's book, 1776, The Wealth of Nations. One of the basic problems was how were you going to get people to turn up every day to work in the factory? Because these are people who would only work to earn enough money to keep them going for the week so they could earn enough money by Wednesday. How can you be sure they'll be there for Thursday and Friday? And so consumerism was invented. So consumerism is this carrot which you have permanently in front of people's noses that continually draws them on and they then never can stop working. They always need to have money because they have unlimited wants. Okay, we no longer go around in old clothes. We get expensive clothes. And now, of course, you have a very elaborate fashion industry uh, where people are actually dressed immaculately. You know, it's this form of consumerism that we're drawing people on. In fact, one of his chapters deals with the whole problem of what's called fast fashion. In other words, people who, um, particularly younger people who buy a piece of clothing and then wear it only once and then throw it away. And the landfill problems that Landfill, yep. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock. And Keith, today we're talking about the climate crisis and global warming. And a new book by Jeff Sparrow, Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating. Now, he is optimistic that something can be done about the future and climate change. And he's also telling people it's not your fault as individuals. But what's interesting, there's a lot of focus on capitalism and its role in climate change, but he's not convinced that green capitalism, i.e. sustainable technologies, are actually going to displace fossil fuels. So what is the solution then? Well, this is what I found fascinating because it really is challenging for those of us who talk about sustainable development and all the rest of it. Um, Here you've got somebody who's saying, look, your efforts are a waste of time. We know you mean well and you want us all to have uh, wind power and solar energy and all the rest of it, but until you get rid of this underlying driving force, which is capitalism and the need to make profits, you're always going to have problems. Um, So you've got to address these deep underlying issues. Otherwise, what you're doing is mere therapy. It's it's a form of theatre. You're not really solving the problems of climate change. Um, so he's, I, it's intriguing that he says it's an optimistic book. I wasn't particularly optimistic when I'm reading it. I found it fascinating. Um, very thought-provoking. Very thought, but... oh, brilliantly thought-provoking. Um, but what I'm looking for was the ideas from him about how are we actually going to change the world? Because I agree with him that we need to have substantial changes. But how are we going to do that? Um, 
And I think he was very weak on his remedies. Well, yeah, he did say that we need to work out how to save the planet and put a plan in place, but the content of that plan is the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean... And also who's actually going to do it. You know, he's obviously, uh, when you look at what some of the writings relate to, you know, he he comes up with ideas. You know, if you look at what Britain was able to do in World War II with mobilising the economy, et cetera, I I quite agree. Britain did mobilise brilliantly for World War II. I'm not that confident that Britain today could mobilise for World War II. Um, In one of uh, his his segments, he talks about um, uh, the way in which government should be better organised, that it can come up with grand plans to get things um, organised. I'm, I'm just not that confident that we have those organisational skills. That's what worries me. Um, and so he talks about, as you say, that we need to create these grand plans and we need to have governments that are going to be willing to implement them. But then when I look at what we're doing in Australia, look at how badly we've handled COVID, not only here, but in uh, the United States, UK, China is is taking a a very different approach on COVID and is threatening the global supply chain. So we've got governments that may not be able to govern very well. Perhaps society is now a lot more complicated. So, yes, the automatic response that you would have, particularly if you're a Marxist, is that you have to go after, after the commanding heights of the economy. But I am just suspicious that today's political leaders would have the ability to be able to run a modern economy, which is really what he underpins a lot of his thinking. I, I just don't have confidence in politicians at all. So I'm sorry. I don't that think I'm... you're alone in that um, <laughs> feeling. Quite frankly, after COVID, I think many people are feeling that way. So, how do we solve something as big as climate change? But I think he does point out that the solutions won't happen overnight, but we have to be committed to a plan that will come with a solution. But to your point, who is going to come up with a plan? Who are the leaders that will take us down that path if individuals aren't Look, there's no shortage of plans for saving the environment. Uh, My own organisation, the Club of Rome, we've been talking about this since 1972 or 1968, really. Um, So there's nothing new in devising plans. The statement that I say is that politicians quite often know what they need to do, but they don't know how to get re-elected after they've done it. Because if you think through what's actually going to be involved, it means that, well, for a start, fast fashion, to which we referred earlier, that will need to change. We just can't have fast fashion if you want to save the world's planet. That's just one little component, but it's an issue that we've touched on. The whole issue of car culture, be able to say to people, sorry, you're going to have to make do with far fewer cars and where possible we won't have cars at all. But we've got cities that are designed only for cars. So you see the immensity of the challenge. And, of course, the longer we leave it, the greater becomes that uh, challenge. And to the point about companies and fast fashion and that kind of thing, similar to politicians, though, many CEOs may be only in the position for a certain number of years and aren't giving it that long (laughs) thinking that unless they're committed to the cause, maybe aren't thinking beyond their tenure at the head of the company either in terms of those really important decisions that may be impacting for decades beyond the time they're there. And the average uh, time in office of a CEO is about 3.1 years. Yeah. So you have a high turnover among CEOs. And also the CEOs will say, look, um, every quarter we have to produce a surplus or a profit 
because it's got to go to our shareholders, some of whom um, are pensioners who need money for their superannuation funds. So the problem is with the pensioners who, who want their superannuation money coming through, the shareholders, the big, the big funds. And they would say, well, look, I want to be looked after today. Rather, I'm not yes. worrying about my grandchildren. They can look after themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so in this book, Jeff actually lists 12 points in terms of change. Is there any hope amongst those 12 points of the direction we should be taking? It's, they're intriguing. There are a procedural nature. So number one, be suspicious of the inevitable attempts to blame the crises on ordinary people, all right? So you can you can have a clear conscience this evening after this, right? You're, you are not to blame for the, the climate crisis. Number two, don't be guilt-tripped into supposed solutions based entirely on personal responsibility. So by all means, have a longer shower in the morning, right? It's not a matter of personal responsibility. Number three, recognise and oppose those supposedly environmental interventions that merely advance the interests of capital. And this is back to green capitalism and greenwashing that goes on where you've got the big corporations pretending to be environmentally sound, whereas in fact they're just simply there to, to lull your conscience. You'll still go on using the product, but you'll do so feeling better. Uh, number four, learn how to argue. And this is interesting because Sparrow is actually saying to his own people on the left, we've got to lift our game. We can't rely on the cancel culture, that we're always suddenly offended by what is being said. We've actually got to come up with good, reasonable arguments ourselves. And it's, so it's interesting that he actually is willing to talk so bluntly to the people on the left. Number five, expect opposition which is what you'd expect. The big corporations are not going to see the, their challenges, you know, going ahead. Um, number six, find collective projects to join and support. So what he's saying is that you should get in and, and be involved with bigger things. Uh, individual people only have strength when they're working with other individuals. I, I agree with that. So I'm a great believer in non-governmental organisations, as we call them, or civil society organizations. Absolutely. Join those environmental organizations. Organize at work. Join your union. Well, congratulations if you have a unionized workforce. If you're a school teacher or an airline crew member, you have a union. But the rest of us don't. Uh, unions are in decline. But anyway, that's his recommendation. Remember, he comes out of the Marxist background. Yes. So this is how the left think, even if they're not realistic. Number eight, Organise wherever you might be. Well, that's fine. You know, um, it's always to go for the near edge and try to do things. Number nine, democratise everything. Now, this for me is fascinating because it's based on the assumption that if you give people one vote one way, uh, one vote on every issue, then they will suddenly be sympathetic to your point of view. And I think that we probably need to come back to this whole issue of democracy because um, We've seen democracy at work in the United States, and of course, it's led to, you know, a lot of anger with the people saying, "Well, you've asked me to vote, and now I've gone and lost the election. I think Donald Trump should have won." So the whole democracy thing is, I think, needed to have a, a separate issue. But the the assumption that he makes is that if people got to vote, they would vote green. <laughs> I'm not that sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think they will vote short term interest. Number 10, make connections, which I agree with that. I make connections all the time. Number 11, prepare to be unprepared. Uh, and it's interesting. Here you've got a Marxist scholar warning, taking a warning from the Bible. The Lord will come 
like a thief in the night. This guy's a Marxist wow. quoting the Bible. Um, and then number 12, he says, stay hopeful. Um, oh, well, I agree with being hopeful. I'm a very hopeful individual. I'm positive. I'm upbeat. But I still don't see how we're going to end climate change. No, it is a big <laughs> challenge, although... His views are very thought-provoking and whether or not you agree with all of them, I think you would agree that the it really raises some interesting questions and Absolutely. it is a new take on climate change. And It is. It's a brilliant book it is for fascinating. being thought-provoking. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.